What's up, all you lovely people? Welcome back to another episode of Out of Character with me, Ryan Satin. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. We're going to do a best of episode. This is episode 43 of Out of Character. I can't believe we've almost done a full year of brand new episodes each week with a different WWE superstar digging into what makes them tick as a person. And I, I have had so much fun doing this, but I've noticed that each time we have a big superstar on the show, we get a spike of new listeners and then it raises a little more each time we get another one on here. And I wanted to go back a little bit. We've done 43 episodes. Like I said, this is number 43, but some of those early episodes that you might not have listened to yet were awesome. And I wanted to bring some attention to some of them because there were some really cool moments within that I really think that a lot of you will enjoy if you haven't already heard them yet. Now, before I get into which ones I chose, I'm going to talk about a couple of things off the bat here that I usually say for the end of the show, but since this is a best of episode, I figured it was okay to talk about these right up top. First, I want to say something here. I want to say thank you so much to all of you that have left a review on iTunes or have just, you know, ra rated the show in general on iTunes. Like it really does make a difference. It helps people see the show. It helps the algorithm know that people care about this show and it gets it put up you know, with, with different lists that are done for wrestling. So really, all of you have already done it so far. I really can't thank you enough. There have been some really kind ones on there, and I'm going to try to start reading some of the best ones when I see them, starting with this one, which was left by Kimberly Ream Cook on iTunes. She says, I love that Ryan is such a fan of wrestling, and these podcasts are pure enjoyable conversation with the talent behind the characters we see on TV. Ryan makes it feel like I'm sitting at the same table as them, sipping a beer and hanging out. Keep up the great work. I always look forward to seeing who the next guest is. Honestly, I love when people tell me that because one of my biggest goals when it comes to podcasting is making you, the listener, feel like you're sitting there right there with me, hanging out, learning from these superstars about who they are as people or just feeling like you're having a good time hearing people swapping stories. So I really, really enjoy hearing when someone tells me that. Thank you very much, Kimberly. Also, there's a comment that was recently left from Mr. Big Deuce, a review from him. <laughs> I don't know what his name means. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Mr. Big Dust, it's spelled D-U-S. I don't know, but it says Ryan does great interviews. And the best thing about them is that he makes the guests feel comfortable enough to actually talk about their lives outside of the ring. Look at I, I, you know, you obviously you see the parts that we make of the show, but you don't see the parts when we're not recording. And, and, and I try to tell the guest afterwards, like, I hope you really actually enjoyed this because this is the, a goal I have when I'm doing the show. Uh, at least when I'm interviewing someone or talking to them is not making them feel bored because I know that sometimes, you know, they've got other things to be doing. So it makes me happy uh, when the guest is having fun and feeling comfortable enough to share their lives with me and all of you. Okay, also, I just want to say I really appreciate all of you that share the clips from the show each week on social media as well. It also, just like the reviews on iTunes, just like the ratings on iTunes and Spotify, wherever, it does help spread the word. If you are enjoying this show, the more you spread the word, the longer I will get to keep doing it. So really, it just if you can, if, you, if there's something that was said on this show that you enjoyed, Spread the word, man. I don't care if you cut the clip for social media. Do it. I want people to hear what is being said on the show. I love watching TikToks that people make from different clips that that of things that we said on the show. So keep it up. I really enjoy it. And thank you so much for sharing the clips. Now, also, make sure that you're subscribed to the WWE on Fox YouTube channel. That's where you can find the video of this show every week. I really do try to make it visual, too. As much as this is an audio medium, we try to make it a real thing that you can watch every week visually. There's pictures. There, there's our faces there. Uh, so if you are a person who enjoys YouTube, go subscribe to the WWE on Fox YouTube channel and watch the show when it premieres or some point in the week. It premieres every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Most of the time, I'm in the chat talking along with everybody else in there about what's going on. I'm asking questions. We're all chatting it up. So please, if you can, go subscribe to the WWE on Fox YouTube channel. And if you're not going to just do it for me, 
There's a bunch of other stuff on there, too. There's a lot of other stuff on there. There's clips from Raw and SmackDown every week. And really, if you're a WWE fan and you're not subscribed, I just, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> also, make sure you follow me on TikTok, man. If you like the clips from this show that we share on social media, I'm making a bunch more on TikTok, too. I love that community. I'm a big fan of the TikTok community. I like what everyone's doing on there. It's a fun place. It's a lot less uh, doom and gloom than Twitter. And so I'm making lots of stuff on there every week, just trying to have fun with the wrestling community. So go follow me on there. I'm at Ryan Satin. Now, let's get to this week's best of episode, to the stuff that I chose for the best of episode. Like I said, we've done 43 episodes. This is number... This is number 43, and in the I, I cut it in half in case I need to do a best of episode in the future again. So it's 22 of the first 22 episodes, what my favorite four segments were, and these are the ones I went with. Dolph Ziggler, huge Dolph Ziggler fan, and this episode made me an even bigger fan of him afterwards, if that's even possible. The part that I'm going to single out here, though, is where he talks about the positives of being in the Spirit Squad, giving back to younger members of the locker room now, and his relationship with Vince McMahon, which I found quite interesting. All of this will make you an even bigger fan of Dolph Ziggler, just like I am after the our conversation. So I think that you'll really enjoy it if you hadn't already listened to that episode. Also, Charlotte Flair. This one was hard for me to even go back and get the time code for because it, it makes me cry every time I watch or listen to it so um, brace yourself it, it gets a little emotional but we talk about how she got into the wrestling business and the loss of her brother Reed I talk about the the loss of my brother as well and we kind of relate over it I think it'll really tell you what makes Charlotte tick and I think it's an interesting look into the mind of someone who's been so successful in WWE speaking of looking into the mind of someone Paul Heyman. I got to pick my interview with Paul Heyman for a segment here, and I chose the part where he talks about being a 13-year-old working with legends like Arnold Skolin, Freddie Blassie, Ernie Roth, and Lou Albano. There's, there was, it was so hard to pick a part of this, but I thought hearing him talk about the, the, the three wise men of the East specifically was so interesting, and I, I, I don't want to take credit for anything here, but after our interview... Uh, that's when Roman started calling him the wise man and when uh, Paul started referring to himself as the wise man again on TV. So I'd like to think that me bringing this up in his mind again made him take a little page from this going forward and bring it to WWE TV. I don't know if that's the, the reason, but I did notice the correlation there because he wasn't doing it before. But first, first off, we got to start with this was technically from the, the, the second episode of the show. But for me. It was the very first episode of the show, and that was Seth Rollins. This was the first interview that I recorded for this show. I hadn't even announced that I was going to be doing a podcast yet. I was very excited. I was very nervous, as you can probably tell in listening to the whole entire thing. But Seth Rollins came on, and and he really helped me form what I wanted the show to be going forward, and I'm really thankful to him for doing that. Um I think that he was going to do the interview in character when it started, even though the show's called Out of Character. And because of my question where I say, how much of your real true self is there in the character? I think it made him quickly realize that that would be kind of difficult to, to weave that web for 45 minutes. So he dropped it and was completely uh, real with me. And it, and it made for a very, very cool conversation, something where I think if you're a wrestler who's just starting off, you can take something from this where he talks about character building and how how much of their, you know, how much of his real true self there is in the character that we know and love on WWE TV or you know, maybe hate since he's a heel. Um but you know, the the person we love to hate. We talk about character building, his relationship with social media and what it was like being a top guy for the first time when he won the title. Like I said, thank you so much to all of you who have listened to all 42 episodes of the show. Now, 43. If you've listened to all 42, you're probably going to skip over this one. I get it. So I wanted to give you a little meat here at the beginning to at least thank you for your time that you've given me. That's what? Almost 43 hours, 42 hours of the show. 
Um, and and I'm so so thankful for all of you for subscribing to the show, for sharing the clips, for chatting with me on social media about it. I I'm very very grateful for this almost full year now that we've been doing the show. Um, thank you so much for the love. I hope you enjoy this best of. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Your hair looks good right now. It's killing it. It's very wavy and stuff. It's uh, here in its natural beauty. <laughs> so since this show is called Out of Character. I want to start off the conversation by asking you this. How much of you, the person, like your real true self is there in the Seth Rollins character? God, I don't know, to be honest with you anymore. <laughs> um, I, I really don't. You know, I've been uh, the Seth Rollins character in some incarnation for the better part of uh, uh, nine years, almost eight and a half, nine years. And you know, the arc of the character has been pretty wild. And, and I, I mean, I, I assume there are parts of me in every bit of the character from the shield to whatever I'm doing now with his hair and these suits. But um, yeah, I, I don't know how much of it is entirely me or an idea I have of myself or, you know, people's perception of me. I, I, I don't even know anymore. It's just like, it just kind of goes you know it just kind of the motion is just unstoppable at this point so you talked about that you know how there's been so many different iterations of your character it's constantly evolving and i feel like you're one of those people who is really good at reinventing themselves to keep things fresh on tv is that something that you usually push for behind the scenes because you want something new or is that just you taking the new creative given to you and making it your own well honestly it happens pretty organically most of the time um, where either a character has run its course, a story has run its course and we need to go in a new direction. Um, but, you know, sometimes they just give me a ball and don't tell me which way to run. And I got to kind of figure out what that's going to look like. And, you know, that's sort of what happened at the end of um, the burn it's down iteration of the character. Um, going to the Messiah version. I didn't know what was, how that was going to look. And you can see, if you look at some parts of my career, these kind of like little few month windows where I'm still trying to figure out what it is that I'm going to do. And, um, and that was a big one, most recent one, obviously. And so now um, it's just, yeah, it, it's about trying to kind of cultivate this personality that is different, but um, not too far from, what people are familiar with. And that can be difficult sometimes too, because, you know, the best wrestling is when it's real to life, uh, close to life. And, uh, you, you know, for me, you can't go too far outside the box when it comes to my character anyway, and what it does. You know, I'm not the undertaker. I'm not Bray Wyatt. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting ride to say the least that when I look back on it all, it'll be pretty cool. Do you try then to, root your character in reality in some way to try and make it feel as like much of a real person as possible then so that you're not like an undertaker or a Bray Wyatt or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's just always the wrestling I've been a fan of. Um, those are always the characters that, that were the most, um, memorable to me or the most effective. And especially now in this era in 2021, gosh, you know, everybody's so, uh, formed shall we say. And so um, it just seems that especially if you're really not going to like somebody, um, there has to be some sort of element to them. Like people have to believe that some of what I'm saying is true, because if they don't, then it's easy to pass it off as, oh, he's just playing a character. He's just um, Brad Pitt playing a role. I, I don't really dislike him. You know, I, I need to dislike his real person. And so there's got to be some element um, that people think is real, whether that's, you know, we do that on social media or something else to try to tie it all in because our, our real lives and our characters are so tied together. You know, it's it's a wild time to be in the industry. But, yeah, I, I definitely to answer your question, I definitely feel like there's got to be a, a little touch of reality in there to get to hook kind of hook people. You know, is that why you've been using social media a little more? Uh, what's the, I'm trying to think of the right word. You've been a little more. Uh... Uh, enthusiastic on social media uh, with with the WWE and stuff, and I've I've liked uh, that you've been using it more again. Uh, I yeah, I mean I hate social media. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really dislike it, and 
you know, I had deleted the Twitter app for my phone for the better part of a few months, just because it was, to me, it, it created a real toxic uh, environment in my own head. Um, and as I was becoming a new father, I was, I needed to not waste my time on that. And so um, it was actually my, uh, my fiance wife to, who kind of was like, you know, you should think about it. You know, it's, I know you hate it and I know it's, you don't like being on the, the apps and all that, but um, you should think about it. And I was like, ah, ah, and I kind of looked around and, you know, no one was really, no one was really doing it. And so I was like, well, oh, to hell with it. I'll, 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 uh, I'll give it a shot. See what happened. The response has been pretty good so far. I love that Becky Lynch is the one that convinced you to get back on Twitter since Becky Lynch's character was so tied with Twitter in the beginning where that really helped her like catapult things in the beginning. So I love that she was like, hey, you know, it does help. Yeah, if you want people to hate you more, why don't you just uh, tweet? (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work when you were trying to get people to like you. So, you know, you might as well just do it while uh, trying to get them to hate you. As a guy who gets a lot of crap on Twitter, I most people say they dislike me on Twitter. I completely understand that mindset of like, yeah, okay, it's it's easier said than done. It's that mental space is hard when you have people saying mean things to you on a constant basis to try and stay positive through all that is difficult. Yeah, it's a weird app, dude. It's a weird place to live your life. Um, and I think one of the things that she told me when and she was like, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to not, you need to understand that it's not need needs not to be taken personally. You know, you need to come at it from a different perspective. And, and I think if you do that, it'll be a little more freeing and, and it has been, but it's still, you know, you, you still take, it's hard not to take some things personally, but again, we go back to kind of some of the previous questions about that kind of towing that line of reality. I think if people think that, I'm taking it seriously. It kind of works better, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, we can have a lot of fun and type in all caps and all that. But I think when I, you know, if, if you, if you think that it really bothers me, if you think that it really grinds my gears then it's probably going to be, it's going to give you more of what you're looking for, I guess. So yeah, that that crowd loves it when someone feels gotten to, um, they're like, Oh, you're gotten to, you're gotten to. So yeah, that's that crowd loves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, God, you know, bless me for catering to them. I hate it, but here I am. <laughs> well, there's that, but, you know, in the settings, you can make it so you only see replies from the people you follow. I recommend turning that on sometimes when, when, it, when there's a lot of them coming in. Yeah, nah, that, I mean, it, that's, we're too far gone on that. <laughs> I, I agree. If you're a regular person, 100%, but if, if I'm doing what I need to do right now with social media, so that, that button is off. I want to see all the negativity. <laughs> I love it. So we then saw you join the authority, win money in the bank, and eventually become WWE champion. And you mentioned right there that you got to work with a bunch of top guys before that. But this is really when you kind of became the top guy. How much did you learn about what it takes to be a top guy in WWE at that time? Yeah, I mean, that was that was definitely um, learning on the job for sure. And to be fair, that's the first time coming out of the shield the first time that I really was a character of any sort that I really understood my role with my personality but it was also the first time I really asked to cut promos at a length um previously you know we shared the duties between the three of us um and then even before that in NXT it just it wasn't we just didn't do it promos weren't that big of a thing you know and so that's just the way the television was, was produced but when we got to WWE and now I'm on my own it was definitely, I was called upon to carry longer promos by myself, but then I had to find, okay, what is this character? What, what sets him apart? And, you know, kind of being the weasel, the, the, the sniveling opportunist, whether you look at Ric Flair or edge were two um, kind of motivations for those characters. Um, you know, and then learning under Triple H and just watching how he carried himself, uh, watching how he handled things, Randy Orton as well, and Kane. I mean, these guys are three top guys, have been for, you know, a long, long time. And so I was learning how to get to that next level. I wasn't there yet, but I was learning how to uh, prepare myself for what was to come. Do you think that people who haven't been in that position underestimate how difficult it is to be the running through line on a Monday night raw to be in multiple segments where you have to learn 
where you have to basically carry the show as the main star for a little while. Do you think people underestimate how difficult that is? I think when people see it for the first time, firsthand, um, if you're if you're talking about you're on the show, when I say people, I mean like you guys in the locker room who yeah. want that top spot. I think when they see it for the first time, and um, I think I kind of gave that window to a lot of the younger guys too because I was sort of one of the first of our generation to get that spot. And so a lot of times, you know, you don't really see all the work that goes in when you're so far distance from it. When you are on the undercard working your way up, you don't see what John Cena has to do on a Monday or Triple H or whomever is kind of running the show. And so those guys and myself, that was the first time I really got to see it. And so once I realized kind of what it was going to be like from a week to week basis, not really having any idea of what you're doing till you show up at the building on Monday and then knowing that you're going to have you know, a, a two segment match and three or four backstage segments um, and, you know, maybe a promo to open the show. I mean, we're talking, it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. And so, yeah, it, it's overwhelming. And it was very overwhelming to me at first. And I, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself um, to, to do well because I felt like I was given the ball and I didn't want to mess it up. You were thrown into some wild characters off the start, you know, off the jump in WWE. You had, uh, you know, the caddy, and then you had a cheerleader. So it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me to hear you talking about how you liked SNL so much, and that you liked the characters, the weird characters on that show. Um, did you like being thrown into the deep end in terms of character work? Uh, thrown into the deep end in terms of character work sounds amazing. I was told. You're going to be Kurt Angle's protege because you're an awesome collegiate wrestler. You're a badass. You work hard. You're picking it up as fa almost as fast as he is. And then they go, you're a cheerleader. What do you think about that? And I went, <laughs> my stomach dropped. And I said, I feel sick. Like, this, I, it's not character work. It's, I, I thought at the time, you get one shot in the business. And I somehow made it this far. And I go, my one shot is going to be as a cheerleader. I'm like, there's no way. I picture in my head, one year from now, there's no way the cheerleader is main eventing WrestleMania fighting for the world title. Uh, if anything, a year later, the cheerleaders are being dumped into a box and sent back to OBW. So I guess I, I can, uh, I'm pretty fast at learning sometimes. But in retrospect, though, do you feel like that era of your career did help you in some way? I mean, you were working with Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels very fast on the main roster. You had to have learned a lot from those guys. A million percent. So now that we got that part out of the way where I was crushed my spirit inside, which would get me used to the next 15 years, whatever, that's fine. But <laughs> you get that down, and now you once you, you start to realize, not just on, on television being in the ring with Shawn Michaels, Vince McMahon, Triple H, Roddy Piper, uh, Ric Flair, anyone, uh, Dusty Rhodes, anyone you can imagine, getting those few minutes on TV, that juicy TV time is amazing, and you learn. But... Our live events on the weekends where we got Rick and Sean and Hunter rotating in and out, tagging us, tagging against us three, four nights a week. And the main event of the show, that is where you learn so much. And no matter what you at first, you're, you're crushed. And then you get to like, I'm in the ring with Shawn Michaels. And then you get I, I'm in the ring with Ric Flair and I, I'm putting him in a figure four right now. This is unreal as a, as a kid. So but you get to those points, those long main event matches because of that spirit squad one year, I am 10 times better than I should have been, no matter how hard I tried because of that experience with all those legends on it is, there's no way you can ever replicate that in a school or even on television or just wanting to be a, a cool character instead. There's no way. What would you say is the biggest lesson you learned during your time with the spirit squad? Uh, man with them, it was so easy to listen because I genu genuinely was brand new. I didn't have a friend in the business. I wasn't a legacy. I wasn't flounder being pulled in and saying, Hey, you got to take this guy and you got to watch out for him. And we got to help him out. It was, I'm this guy who doesn't know anybody. I don't come from even independent wrestling. My father or mother wasn't a wrestler. I just loved it and wanted to do it since I was five. And just, you, you of course you, you quietly listen to what everyone says, but you have to remember the main eventers are telling you what are telling, giving you information. And then there's people who behind the scenes are the opposite of main eventers and they're giving you information and you are expected to at least go, yes, sir. Thank you. And even though you're like, this doesn't make any sense, 
Uh, and sometimes, you know, you'd be wrong. And because uh, not everybody who's the best is on top. I get that. But it was just, I wanted to learn from everybody so fast that you have to quickly go, successful people have this. And then there's people who are at the, uh, this, you know, the opening match of the show who just might not be in the main event, but they've been around 15 years and they know. And you quickly learn who's full of it and who's trying to make the show better. Do you enjoy getting to be on the other side of that now and giving that th that same knowledge to some of the new talent, like a Dominic Mysterio or something like that? No, screw all them. They're not taking my spot. <laughs> uh, no, I uh, and I'll, I'll give you that answer just like I would say to them backstage, but also go once the joke was over, be like, I love passing that on. I really do. Um, th there's no there's no reason to be a negative, bitter a hole and then not give back to everybody else. So I, I know what I'm doing better than almost everybody in the business. And I can give it, uh, give out that lessons and maybe they take it, maybe they don't. But being in the ring, uh, Street Profits, Dominic, uh, it's, it's so fun to go to know that you're helping and you're, you're not trying to sabotage. Uh, and I would and they wouldn't even know it. But I'm not because I, I care so much for the product that I want. You know, if we go to the back, Vince ain't yelling at Dominic. For screwing up, you know, it was me. I screwed up because this is in my hands, which I waited my whole life till about five years ago for everything to be in my hands and I work for it and prove it. So I love when it's all on me uh, to, to make everything special. And of course, uh, someone like Dominic, who just loves the business, is a sweetheart. He's going to be great for a long time. It's fun to be in there and, you know, throw some things around and see what he does. It's really fun. You know, and talking about Vince, I feel like when I was doing the prep for this interview and I was, you know, looking at your career, to me, it seems like he has always had a trust in your abilities, even early in your career. I mean, your, your first match as Dolph Ziggler is against Batista. Um, what's your relationship like with Vince? Do you think there's a, a trust between the two of you? There is uh, a trust that so few of your favorites have that I have. And it's wild because... Uh, without complaining, I'm not the main event guy at the moment. And a lot of times when it comes down to something special, I'm the guy just a match away or so. But I know from that relationship, uh, and I mean, you have to earn it. And it's not just, oh, I, I earned this a few years ago. Now I'm fine. you got to re-earn it every day. And I do. And if I mess up, which I do all the time, I say, I screwed this up. It's on me. I will fix this for next time. But uh, even though those years, I'd say of the 15 – Eight or nine of them felt like, man, Vince hates my effing guts. What the hell is happening here? And then there's those five or six where you go, I get it now. This is, he, he's, he's pushing me. He's challenging me because only I can do these things. And I'm very blessed to be doing them and still kicking ass doing them, which is pretty great. Well, I mean, when, okay, so then. You mentioned it kind of, so I'm just going to get into it. Like, what was the thing that got you into wrestling? You mentioned your brother, Reed, and obviously I'm, I'm aware of his passing. Was that really like the thing that triggered you to get into wrestling? So Johnny just called me, <laughs> who I'm about to talk. So 2012, we're in Miami. It's me, my dad, my little brother, Reed, Johnny Laurinaitis. Um, we're all at dinner. And I still don't know if maybe my dad had said something to Johnny about wrestling or I don't know, because the whole point was for my dad and Johnny to get Reed on the right path so he could get into WWE. Right. So we're, uh, this was even before the hall of fame, like the night before we just arrived in town, we're at dinner, we're at the hotel and Johnny and his like raspy voice is like, Hey kid, why aren't you doing this? And I was like, mind you, like the Bellas had just walked by. Like, I, I'm thinking, I don't know. And then I think in my own personal life, I just was lost. Like, you're telling me this is life. This is it. I'm done with college and I'm just personal training. Like, sure. Why, why am I not doing this? But my little brother was like, dude, yes, you got to do this. We can do it together. Uh, we can go to Tampa together. Cause at the time NXT our third brand was at CW um, let's do this together. You got to do it. Winky. That was my nickname. You got to do it. You got to do it. You'd be excellent. Um, and I still tell Natty to this, to, to this day, but Reed was always like, you got to watch Natalia. You got to watch Natalia. She's a legit wrestler. And it's crazy then to think yeah. that I had my match with her that put me on the mat. Yeah. Um, so from April of 2012, from that, from that dinner, 
my dad was like, okay, Johnny, she'll do it. So I don't know if my dad had said to Johnny, hey, say this to her to get a fire lit under Reed. So from April to July, I was going through the process of where Canyon, I was his first hiree, nice. who was the talent hire. I was Canyon's first hire. Like Triple H was just taking over. So Triple H had hired Canyon and uh, I was, you know, got the phone call and then Triple H had called and said, you know, everyone was just kind of shocked. We're like, you really want to do this? Huh? So I just remember him saying, you know, just because you don't, and he said this in such a kind, loving, gentle way, but he was like, just because we're, you know, opening the door for you does not mean we're going to open the door for Reed. I was like, Oh no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no clue. (laughs) Even though that was like, really, I guess the whole idea. So for like April, May, June, July, I'm like, what am I doing? Like I've never even been in a ring. I got in a ring in that three months, one or one or two times with a guy by the name of Lodi. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I saw that when I was researching I, and I was like, Charlotte was trained by Lodi. I didn't know that. Well, my dad was like, we need to get you in a ring at high spots. So me, my little brother, my dad, Lodi. And if you remember, Dash was friends with my brother at the time. Dash had come that day. And I think the second day I went, I did like a sunset flip and Lodi hit my nose or whatever. And it broke my nose. I was like, oh, I'm done. No, no, <laughs> not the nose. <laughs> Lodi could have so ended I your career it, I think, that quickly. I, I think it could have all been Lodi's fault. It could have ended everything. I know. And I didn't even like, I didn't really let, I was like, okay, I don't know if I like this. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Cause I didn't know what I was doing. And we were in high spots, like whatever. So I still went through it and like every day I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? But I know I'm meant for more in life than this. Like I was just lost. So I reported to Tampa July 12th. My, and then my, my little brother ended up passing a year later. So when I got there, um, I was scared, nervous, didn't know what to do. Like, here I am, Ric Flair's kid, just showing up. And the only thing that kept me in the game was that I was just super athletic and just kept, you know, earning the respect from the future or the, from the my peers just by working my butt off um, and like blow up drills and things like that. And then when my brother passed away, it really just started to click. When he passed, you know, I think for me, my brother passed away in 2013 as well. And it was, it was like one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. But for me, you know, I really buried myself in work afterwards. I was like, all right, well, I don't want to pay attention to anything else. I don't want to focus on these feelings. Like, I just want to focus on my career and try to just drown it all away. Do you think that you just kind of buried yourself in pro wrestling after that? Oh, God, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, like yep. I, for me, yep. you know, with my brother, like, I don't know, like after he passed away, cause similarly, you know, my brother worked in the entertainment industry too. He worked in TV and, you know, we had always made plans to like do TV one day as well and like make TV shows together. Um, but when he saw everything that I was doing in pro wrestling as a reporter, when I was first starting, he, he and I, since we were always big wrestling fans, he was like, Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. You have to become a pro wrestling news guy. That's what you got to do. And so when he passed, it was like, okay, well, I guess I don't have a choice now. Like this is what I have to do. So I kind of <laughs> like, I kind of feel like with my brother, like I have to achieve the goals that he and I had set now. And I, I have to achieve them. Do you kind of feel that pressure as well to like, that you have to achieve these goals that, <laughs> that he would have wanted to have seen you accomplish? I and I mean this as like genuine and sincere as possible, but I don't think he'd ever could imagine the fact that his sister main evented WrestleMania. Like I still, some days I'm like, how did I end up here? I have no idea. Like I, I guess I just wish he could have seen me once, you know, just one time. But, um, I think I do it more like, you know, I have the chip on my shoulder being Flair's kid. But it's the whole, like, I saw how much it affected him with how mean people were being Ric Flair's son. Because he had wrestled on the, you know, he was wrestling on the Indies 
when he passed and he had just been in Japan, but people were just so brutal. Like, and that's hard. I can't imagine what he felt or having to live up to like that expectation. So I think that's what more like I'm doing it for him in terms of like, we're showing those people like who we are, what we're made of. Does that, Absolutely. In fact, in fact, it it not only makes sense, but it it explains so much of your character to me too. Like that, that one sentence just like explained everything to me. I even like, and I don't talk about it with him, but like even my big brother, like seeing what people would say, like my big brother was thrown into WCW with no practice. He was 19 and he's Ric Flair's kid. Like, What'd you expect? He had no training like to, I, I could just protect them. You know, people are, are just so cruel. And I mean, David, my older brother, I mean, he's so happy now and a husband and a father and the best father to his two kids. Um, but just seeing t- both my brothers suffer from that. Yeah. I wish I could protect them with bubble wrap. <laughs> man hearing that it's just it's so good to see the success that you've achieved then in wrestling because like i mean i've already been happy to see the success you achieve achieve because you seem like (laughs) such a nice person as it is but like just to hear like the motivations like that and you know knowing what that's like and at least with reed um it's really it's 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 for someone like me who finds inspiration in the things you do and how you are able to kind of overcome the things that you've dealt with in life. It it really is inspiring to see. I hope you know that people like me are inspired by it. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And I didn't know about your brother, so we will have that bond forever. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I feel like a lot of people who watch wrestling now, younger fans, don't realize that you've been around the wrestling industry since you were like 13 years old. I think that, I mean, even when I watched, I rewatched your documentary to prep for this, and I'm like, man, it's crazy to think like, I couldn't picture now a 13 year old infiltrating the wrestling business in the way that you did. And back then they were running even qualified D1 athletes out the door by breaking their legs in in the Tampa Sportatorium and having you walk in the door and getting stretched and hooked by Jack Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe and Bob Roop and Hiro Matsuda. And, you know, here comes Mr. Hattori, who's about five foot four and 115 pounds and would stretch Everybody uh, that, that would walk, you know, 300-pound football players, you know, would just would just get their asses beat by 115-pound Masahatori. So, um, and then that's how you broke in newcomers to the business. And certainly someone who wasn't an athlete, and I was never an athlete, and certainly someone who wasn't qualified to, to say, oh, one day I'll take all these bumps and we'll all make money together. Uh, <laughs> that, that wasn't going to be me. But, but I... I, I I just was in the right place at the right time with the right set of circumstances, with, with the right moments that just I lucked into that got me accepted enough to where once some of these very hardened old school veterans would just hear some of the ideas that I was very eager to pitch. <laughs> um, they're like, well, okay, you know what? The kid sees this a little differently. and But it was always based on, on, on an enormous amount of respect. An enormous amount of respect for what they did as performers for, for, for the art form of it all. And, and, and I, I think that they, that they understood that. And just the, uh, the, the level of respect that I had um, allowed me into that locker room, you know, that allowed me to be... Uh, accepted by a, a, a crop, a roster of some very salty uh, legends <laughs> that would not welcome even people that were going to be coming up through the ranks of the business. And I was only a teenager. You know, who was the first one to befriend you of that old guard that kind of like did listen to your ideas? Arnold Scoland. Arnold Scoland. You know, uh, I mean, and, and 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 it's funny because to me that Arnold Scoland will go down in history. As, um, as the, the manager for Bruno San Martino, the manager for Bob Backlund, the golden boy Arnold Skolin. When in fact, what Skolin should go down in history for, besides the fact that he was one of Vincent James McMahon's original partners, mm-hmm. uh, besides the fact that he and his wife Betty built uh, c- certain of the 
of the, of the smaller venues like, like the Westchester County Center in White Plains, New York, uh, for Vincent James McMahon, for the Capital Wrestling Corporation. Uh, but Arnold Scoland was the, the, the Brock Lesnar, the Kurt Angle of, of his day. He, he was the toughest man in the industry. He was a hooker. He wasn't just a shooter. He, he would hook people. He, you know, separate tendon from bone. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, when Vincent James McMahon took over the bookings for Andre the Giant in Japan from Frank Valois, he sent Arnold Scoland with Andre to stand ringside in case anybody tried to double cross Andre. <laughs> That's so crazy. So if you're actually sitting there thinking, oh, you know what's be a good idea today? Let's double cross the giant. <laughs> the same giant that dragged Blackjack Mulligan out into the ocean and tried to drown him. There's, you know, all these legendary Andre the Giant stories. You know, who's his bodyguard? Arnold Scoland. Think about this. What was San Martino's reputation back in the day? What was Bob Backlund's reputation back in the day, you know, for, from the NCAA, from being an amateur wrestler? Who was their bodyguard? And make no mistake about it, Arnold Scoland was ringside in case some other promoter paid off somebody to hit the ring and take down Bruno San Martino or take, hit the ring and try to beat up Bob Backlund, which anybody that you talk to from that era will tell you was an impossible task. <laughs> But yet, if you happen to have this thought in your head, you also had to take into consideration, uh-oh, I have to deal with Arnold Skoland. What a frightening human being this had to be. And he, uh, he I, I got my first press pass from him because Vincent James McMahon sent me down to the Holland Hotel on 42nd Street and 8th Avenue in New York City to pick up my press pass. And he was like, oh, you're from, kid? Oh, I'm from Westchester. I, I live, he lived in Elmsford. So he, he was very close and invited me to the Westchester County Center and let me do the programs for the event so I could make, I make a little bit of money while I was there. And I ended up helping set up chairs and everything else. And, you know, I'll come in the back. We'll take some pictures with some people. And, um, you know, what did you think of the show? And then I would tell him my honest thoughts. And he was like, okay, you look at this thing a little differently than, than everybody else. Yeah, I try to. Was, you don't need an opinion that you already have. And then he would, t you know, hey, Monsoon, come here a minute. Kid, tell him that idea that you had, you know? And it's like, Simply, you know. This is 13 when this was happening? Uh, a little older. A little older. It was, it, it, I, I really started to get into the mix after Shea Stadium, which was August 9th, 1980. So by the time we hit the garden in September, I had just turned 15. Okay. And that's when I really started to get to know people and ended up driving Freddie Blassie home uh, when he forgot his stuff for Allentown and Hamburg, even though I didn't have a driver's license. Uh, <laughs> but. Well, for, you know, Freddie Blassie, Grand Wizard, Lou Albano is another you know, yeah. group of guys who, you know, famously took you under their wing, yes. gave you wisdom and stuff. Um, just like, what was, what was that like working with those guys? Those three guys are such legends of the industry that like not a lot of yeah. people have stories with anymore. See, it's funny. I never really looked around my environment and went, wow, I can't believe this is happening. I've always felt this is supposed to be happening to me, or this is what I want to be happening to me. So how do I create the environment in which it does happen to me? You know, yeah. um, it, it's like when I was a kid, I used to I used, I, I, I used to scribble, which made my mother so happy with me, uh, <laughs> on 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 my wall, make it happen. You know, I was like, I really like that with an exclamation point. Um, and, and and then as 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 I got a little bit older, it was, it was three exclamation points because because one wasn't enough of an emphasis um <laughs> but that was it i never i never like looked around going like i can't believe that the grand wizard and freddie blasi and will Bano are teaching me the you know the secrets of, of how they've held this fiefdom in the wwwf for so many years i couldn't imagine life being any different than them doing it with me because that's the position that i wanted to be in and then you have a choice in life of either making that happen, seizing the moment, capitalizing on the opportunity, ex exploiting when the circumstances come together, or you don't, and you don't live out your dreams. I've, I've, I've just been very myopic in my um, viewpoint of dreams are there to be chased and to be lived, and the moment that you live them, you go after the next one. Uh, so I, I, I just, you know, when people say, what was it like? 
it was supposed to be, you know? It was, I don't know, what was it like, you know? And, and this is gonna, this was, I'm so egotistical and so arrogant and I, I don't mean it in that way, though it, it'll be accepted in that way, uh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, what was it like for them to have this kid, you know, that, that, that you know, like, like they all adopted, you know? I was, like, I was like the bastard child of the three wise men of the East. Yeah, well, it reminds me of like that show Young Rock, but with a little Jewish kid, you know? Like- <laughs> yeah, oi, oi, but a finish. How could you do this in the garden, in the garden? Let's get a Kanish and talk about it. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's, 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 it's what I was meant to do, you know? It's like, I can't, I can't imagine the trajectory would be any other way. I actually completely understand that. Like, I, it's funny that you say make it happen is like your mantra was your mantra growing up because that's always been my mantra as well. And that's crazy for me to hear you say that because like my whole life, my dad was always just make it happen. That's what he always said to me. Anytime I wanted to do anything, go out for anything, it was just make it happen always. And so uh, that's always been my mantra too. So I, I actually, completely understand that in yeah. some weird way. Yeah, I'm also, I'm also, I'm not afraid, of, I'm not afraid of failure. Yeah. And we're all going to fail. I mean, nobody bats a thousand. You know, I, again, you, using the wisdom of my father, my, my, my father used to say, in his best year, Ted Williams, Ted Williams was sent to the dugout six out of 10 times that he was up at the plate. <laughs> and they made a big deal when he made it to four out of 10, he made it to first base. And it's like, when you look at it from that perspective, you know, uh, okay. And then again, you know, you, you, f- failure failure just means you tried something that either the circumstances dictated it ain't going to happen for you yet, or you weren't ready, you yourself weren't ready to achieve that goal yet. But, but you learn along the way, and you learn what went wrong, and either you apply it to the same pursuit when you go back for it again, or the next pursuit that you make, you say, okay, wait a second. I'm going to get something out of that failure. I'm going to profit from that failure. I'm, 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 I'm going to get something positive from that failure that then I can apply to this. And, and this goal will be achieved because that goal wasn't. So maybe that goal was the sacrifice. Yep. Was, was the collateral damage for this goal to actually happen. Yeah, that actually makes complete sense to me. But what is... Would you say though, if there's anything because you did learn from three of like the godfathers of, of managers, oh, you oh, know? Yeah. Uh, is there anything that they taught you that you still hold to this day, like just like the main things of being, you know, an advocate or a special counsel to someone? You know, it was it was it was a lot. You know, it, it was it was um, because they were such different people and such different characters. You know, Albano, Albano always thought it was, you know, Captain Albano presents Ryan Satin, you know. All right, Satin, you know, just stick with me, kid. You're going to be fine. I'm going to, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be Lou Albano's top guy. And then to Albano, that was always a designation. It wasn't Bruno San Martino versus, versus Ryan Satin with Lou Albano. It was Bruno San Martino's program with Lou Albano continues and Satin <laughs> is, is this month's flavor of the month, you know. Um, Freddie Blassie, always viewed himself as the star Freddie Blassie. He also understood better than Albano that his role was a supporting one. But he also understood coming, you know, going back in that day, Freddie Blassie stopped wrestling full time in 1972. And he was a huge, huge attraction for years, everywhere that he ever went. New York, California, Japan, my dad still talks about him. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I mean, this was this was the biggest. You know, if gorgeous George had become a manager, he would have been Freddie Blassie. So Blassie always had the ego tug of letting you know, I'm classy, <laughs> Blassie. <laughs> we drew twenty two thousand with with my guy in the main event. I drew twenty two thousand with me in the main event. You know, <laughs> yes. so. It was, uh, and Blassie always had that internal struggle, but he did understand his role. No one understood the role better than Ernie Roth, uh, the Grand Wizard. He, 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 he was a, 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 a voracious student of the game itself, uh, and 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 he would obsess over 
where he would stand, how he would stand. Uh, should, should I be this much over your shoulder or this much over your shoulder? What makes you look bigger? What, 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 what brings more attention to you when you say your words? So he, he always, you know, Blasty would do a promo and then his guy would do a promo. Albano, no one could ever figure out where he was going to go. He would just come on and just start ripping and babbling and pissing off Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the, the, the announcer. But Ernie would always um, want to develop a routine. You know, I'll say this, which leads into that. Or he'd ask superstar Billy Graham, or he'd ask Don Morocco, or he'd ask Greg Valentine, or he'd ask uh, Bob Orton Jr., or he'd you know, or he'd ask uh, Sergeant Slaughter. You know, any, any of the guys that he would work with. Um, what do you want to say? Well, I want to say this. Okay, I have the perfect lead-in. And he'd give you the lead-in that then transitioned perfectly, you know. And they all had their merits in how they approached it. And 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 they all had their ways and they all had a vision, you know, and, and they all apply. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, when I was watching, because, I mean, obviously that's not my era, so I went back. And I was just while race, research, uh, researching for this, I went back and I watched a ton of their promos just for fun. Um, and I got caught in like a, a wormhole of just watching them because they're yeah. all so good. And they all do such a great job of just commanding your attention the whole entire time. Mesmerizing, mesmerizing, yeah. you know? But, um, but again, they, they, they're so different in their approach. Um, doing doing what Albano did is, is a complete violation of what Blassie did, which was a complete violation of what Ernie Roth did, which was a complete violation of what Albano did. But I also noticed, you know, it's funny that those three guys helped mold you because I did notice in watching their promos that you do seem to kind of like be a combination of the three of them in some way. Oh, how could I not be influenced by them? And, and how could I not want to pay tribute to them while I do this? You know, I mean, th th there have been... A lot of very talented people that have that have had the opportunity to pick up a microphone here in WWE in the past twenty years, but nobody has been the, the you know manager, spokesman, uh, advocate, special counsel to the degree that I have. Um, so, in, in many ways, as the three wise men were to Vincent James McMahon in the Vincent Kennedy McMahon era, where, where all managers were were gone, I'm. I, I brought it forward into a new, into a new generation uh, from the old generations. <laughs>